You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Well, good morning. Oh, wow, that was good. It must be, it must be the extra hour. I know, I, I know that was sure nice. Uh, I enjoyed that. My name is Josh Matthews. Um, I'm kind of new to the preaching team, so thank you for having me here with you this morning. Um, the passage that we're going to look at today, as you know, we've been going through Mark, and we've come to chapter 12. So this morning, we're going to be looking at chapter 12 of Mark, verses 1 through 12. And if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and get that out, however, however you do that. Um, and it's a, it's a little kind of short passage, but it's a power-packed passage. Um, last week, just to kind of get us up to speed, last week Jay talked about chapter 11, the first part of chapter 11. And we saw there where Jesus entered into Jerusalem as king, the triumphal entry. And then he went to the temple and cleansed it and reclaimed it from those who had made it into a den of robbers. And then at the end of chapter 11, starting in verse 27, Jesus is in the temple still and some people come around him and start questioning him. There's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And they come and ask him a question. They ask him, who gave him the authority to do the things that he's been doing and to say the things that he's been saying? They're trying to stump him. Instead, though, Jesus kind of flips it around and he asks them a question. And he said, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, these guys, they're, instead of stumping Jesus, they're the ones stumped because they think, well, if we say it's from heaven, then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from, from man, then they're afraid of the people because the people think that John the Baptist is a prophet. So they don't have an answer for Jesus, and this kind of builds this tension between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we see this tension continue in a, a lot of little uh, interactions throughout chapter 12. We're going to look at just the first one of those this morning, and what we'll see here is that these tense conversations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders they provide an opportunity for Jesus and for Mark to drive home some really profound points uh, about who Jesus is and about what the significance is of what he's doing. So let's just go ahead and read then this passage in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, and see what's going on here. Verse 1, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for, a, for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. And he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... uh, this picture that you paint that teaches us so much about who you are and about your love for us. We pray that uh, as we think through this passage this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would soften our hearts to hear what we need to hear, um, to change our ways or our thinking and to confess our sin if that's what we need to do, and to rejoice in you and worship you as we respond to what you've done and how you've revealed yourself to us. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. So this parable, it's kind of a powerful little parable, but um, I think a good starting place is to think about who he's targeting, who Jesus is targeting, who he's kind of aiming this message at. Um, And I think we would all say that it's fairly clear that he's challenging the Jewish leaders that he's talking with, right? Uh, The chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they're the ones that he's aiming this, this parable and its message at. But I want to encourage you to, to not tune out. I know that you might be thinking after we've read this that you might be thinking, I'm not a chief priest. I'm not a, any kind of a religious leader or anything like that, so I can kind of just, just tune out. I can start to think about the games that are going on today or uh, daydream about Tuesday and what's going to happen at the election Um, maybe more of a day mare in that situation. (laughs) Uh, We know God is in control, and I I appreciate Jay's prayer there of praying for our leader, whoever it is, and trusting the Lord's control. But please, what I'm asking you here, what I'm encouraging us all is not to tune out. Jesus' words in this little parable, they're relevant to all of us. The Jewish leaders, they understood that it was about them, But I think if we're willing to see it, we'll see that this parable, that Jesus is talking about us too. In order to see this, let's first spend just a few minutes kind of unpacking the parable. It's thinking about who's who and the different characters and to what or to whom they refer to in the story. Thinking about who's who in the parable will help us understand kind of how we're supposed to respond. The first thing that we see is the vineyard. Um, the imagery of the vineyard, this would have really caught the attention of of the people that Jesus was talking with. And not just because they could kind of look around and see vineyards scattered around the hillside around Jerusalem. No, this also uh, illustrates a point Jesus is making that's rooted in the Old Testament. And when I say rooted, I mean that as a pun intended. The the vineyard is is an idea that we see all through the Old Testament. In Isaiah... It says this, and you'll notice a lot of just the same terminology that we see in, our, in Mark here to, uh, in chapter 12. It says this, it says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then just a few verses later, In Isaiah 5, it says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. 
This is a picture of God's relationship with his people. God prepared a place for his people. He planted them with great care in a bountiful land that was meant for them to enjoy. In Isaiah, and all through the Old Testament, in several different places, God's people are pictured as a vineyard or as a vine. So with this Old Testament imagery in mind, when Jesus refers to a vineyard, he has the same background in mind. Um, the, in the Jesus parable, the vineyard owner is God, and the vineyard itself refers to the people of God. Remember last week, um, Jay was talking about uh, Jesus going in and cleansing the temple, and he said that Jeremiah and Isaiah were in, in mind when Jesus said that he was going to change, uh, or that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer, but the people had made it a den of robbers. Those were quotes from the Old Testament. All through Mark, we've seen this same thing, and really, all the New Testament writers do this. They, when they refer to the Old Testament, they assume kind of a, a, a general understanding of the context. And I think it's the same in our, in our own everyday communication today. This isn't something that's just unique to the Bible. We refer to something and we expect people who we're talking to to, to understand kind of the context. Uh, one example that's actually kind of fun for me to talk about, um, who, who out here knows the name or recognizes the name Steve Bartman? A few people. Okay, good. Well, this, so the Chicago Cubs... On Wednesday, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. That's right. Cubbies. They had, since 1908, they hadn't won the World Series, the longest drought in any professional major, league, major sports. 108 years, long, miserable years they had gone without winning, and they won on Wednesday. I've been a fan of the Cubs since, since 2003 when I, I lived in Chicago, and I still kind of am in a little bit of a daze. I can't believe they won. This is my wife Stacy and me at a game earlier this year. Uh, she's a fan now too. <laughs> but if you're a Cubs fan, or really if you're a baseball fan, you might have heard the story. But in 2003, uh, the Cubs were in the playoffs that year. Kind of a rare thing, but they were in the playoffs. In fact, they were just five outs away from reaching the World Series. They were in game six um, against the Florida Marlins of the, the league championship series. Um, and in the eighth inning, there was a, f a foul ball kind of over towards the stands, and as the ball was coming down, a, f a fan, a man named Steve Bartman, reached out, interfered with the play, and the left fielder, who might have had a chance to catch it, wasn't able to, and it dropped to the ground. So the, the Marlins batter had another chance, and really, to make a long story short, um, the Cubs had a 3-0 lead at that point, and it quickly dwindled away and ended up in an 8-3 loss in game six. And then they lost game seven, eliminated from the playoffs. Their history of losing was gonna continue uh, for several more years, for 13 more years until, until just this year. Um, but the point here is that, okay, well, another slide. So there's the play, there's poor Steve Bartman, who did what any fan would have done in this situation, but uh, has been vilified for it for 13 years. But the point here is that ever since 2003, if you, as a Cubs fan, if you say the name Steve Bartman, all this whole history comes to mind. You don't have to recount the game. You don't have to recount the 108 years. Just saying the name Bartman brings all that stuff to mind, that whole context. In fact, before this last week, 
A lot of Cubs fans wouldn't ever even utter that name. It was like the name not to be, not to be named. Um, of course, I'm not superstitious like that. So it, but I probably wouldn't have used this illustration if they wouldn't have won. <laughs> so make of that what you will. So the point here is that when we communicate, we often just take for granted a broader context of the, to the references that we're making. And, and that's how it is all through the Bible, too. Jesus and the New Testament writers, they assume a general familiarity with the background of the Old Testament. We can't fully appreciate who Jesus is and what he came to do without grasping how Moses and David and all the Old Testament prophets eagerly anticipated the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. And to do this, you don't have to be an expert to make these connections and to see how it all fits together. You don't have to be some kind of a scholar or a pastor. Um, most Bibles, pretty much any Bible that you look at, including these, these Bibles, uh, are, uh, I guess, pew Bibles. Is that what we call them? That's what I, they've always been called traditionally. But pew Bibles um, even have these cross-references. In the margins, there's little references pointing you to other passages that are related. And looking at those, just kind of getting in the habit of as, you, as you're doing your Bible reading or um, looking at a passage, just jump to those references and see how the connections are being made. Um, and as you do this, you'll kind of start to see just the beautiful, rich way that the Bible all fits together, that it tells a unified story. Um, and the Bible will, come, will begin, I think, to come alive for you. So when Jesus tells this parable about a vineyard, He's not just making a contemporary agricultural illustration. He's making a poignant theological connection. He's reminding his listeners and reminding us too of the story of God's relationship with his people. And, and Jesus takes this imagery and builds on it for his parable, adding a couple key uh, important elements to the vineyard story. It says that after the man planted the vineyard, he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. In the imagery of the parable, these farmers, the tenants renting the vineyard, they're the leaders of God's people, the ones who are responsible for caring for them and for leading them in worshiping the Lord and bearing fruit for him. As we keep reading here uh, in the parable, we see, some, we see quickly that the tenants are not good guys. They're wicked, they're greedy, they're ruthless individuals. And the hard part for those that Jesus is talking to is that they're making this connection too. They see that Jesus is actually talking about them. They know that these evil tenants refer to them in Jesus' parable. And they would quickly find out as the story continues that this is not a good connection for them. It doesn't make them look good. And they get very angry as we see. So the, the owner has gone away He's left the, tenant, the vineyard to tenants, and in verse 2, it says this. It says, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And then after the first servant, after this first servant is beaten and then cast away, sent back empty-handed, he sends another, serv sends another servant, and then another, and then many more after that. And each of them are beaten, treated shamefully, and some of them are even killed by the ruthless tenants. These servants that the owner is sending, these are the prophets. 
These are the ones who were sent by God all throughout Israel's history to correct the people's sins and to proclaim the word of God and announce his coming Messiah. And like the servants in the parable, over and over again, these prophets are mistreated. God sent Elijah to turn Israel back to himself, away from their wicked ways. And the king of Israel, Ahab, and his wife Jezebel, they kept trying to hunt Elijah down and kill him. Another prophet, a guy named Micaiah, he was smacked in the face for prophesying against Israel. Uh, Jeremiah was beaten, imprisoned, and dumped into a muddy pit. Zechariah, another prophet, was stoned to death at the house of God. Really, this list goes on and on. This happened over and over with the prophets that God sent to his people. At the end of 2 Chronicles, kind of at the end of the history of, of the Old Testament, uh, there's this summary statement about the, the unfaithfulness and despicable ways of God's people and of their leaders. And it goes on to say this, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God, God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. God demonstrated his patient, persistent grace in sending the prophets again and again to correct the sinful ways of the people and to tell them of the coming Messiah. But over and over again, the prophets were rejected and mocked and persecuted. So going back to the parable then, in verse 6, the story takes a turn and it gets even more serious. Here it says, The vineyard owner had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all. This beloved son, this represents Jesus. For the Jewish leaders and for us, especially as we read the gospel, we see this very clearly. The vineyard owner has already demonstrated remarkable patience and grace and mercy and now he's willing to send them his own son? This is remarkable. Even, even just this part by itself is an amazing picture of God's grace and love. And then in verse 7, the connection between Jesus and the son becomes even more obvious. The greedy tenants, they see an opportunity when he's coming to them. They say to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They want the vineyard to themselves. So they take the beloved son, and then they kill him, and they throw his body outside the vineyard. At this point in the parable, the focus kind of begins to shift. It moves from thinking about the past to thinking about the future. From the prophets that God sent over and over to his people to the upcoming events of the cross. These Jewish leaders, they've already been plotting on how they're going to arrest Jesus. And they'll soon hand him over to be crucified. Their schemes, their, their plans, these are going to ensure that the parable actually comes true. The beloved son is about to be killed by the wicked tenants. So that's kind of there's obviously a lot more that we could say uh, about the parable, about what it means that he took the parable from them and gave it to somebody else. If you want to think about that, read Romans 9 through 11. Uh, but we're going to just keep moving. And let's, let's think now about 
uh, what this means for us. Now that we've seen who's who in the parable, how are we supposed to respond? What does it mean for us? Parables uh, aren't meant to be just fun stories. They are intended to make a point, and I think that the point that they're making is a point for us today to hear and to respond to. And the way that we respond, it kind of depends on who we identify with in the story. I think generally there are, there are three main options for who we identify with and how then we can respond accordingly. And I think in some ways, all three of these apply to us today. The first option is to identify with the persecuted prophets, which were the servants in the parable. Um, these, uh, for, for these, for you, if this is kind of who you associate with or identify with, the message here is to persevere. We should not be surprised or disheartened if, or rather when, we face opposition for following Jesus. We aren't all called to be actual prophets like the Old Testament prophets, and we probably won't, many of us, most of us hopefully, won't be uh, beaten and treated shamefully and hit on the head or killed uh, because of standing for Jesus. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to speak the truth and we're called to stand firm on God's word, often in opposition to the culture around us. In 1 Peter, Peter gives this encouragement. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Jesus himself set the ultimate example of suffering, persecution, and rejection. As Gary pointed out a couple weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 10, when we join in the kingdom mission of Jesus, it means we're joining also in his suffering. And if we look around us today, it's plain to see that following Jesus means standing against the currents of our world and our culture. We will be rejected. We will be mocked. Some of us maybe even will be persecuted. It's, it's pretty much inevitable that we will face opposition. Like the prophets in the Old Testament, Christians throughout history have faced persecution of all sorts throughout the history of the church. In fact, in, in a lot of places in the world, this is happening even today. For us, things are relatively here in America. We enjoy a lot of, a lot of freedoms as Christians. But if that changes, if we no longer enjoy the kind of freedom that we have now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. And we shouldn't let that stop us from faithfully serving Jesus and standing firm on God's word. So that's the, that's the response of the persecuted prophets. If we're identifying with the religious leaders in the story, I think, the, in a nutshell, what we're supposed to do is repent. It's calling us to have an attitude of humility and repentance. And let me say this, by the way, just kind of as a, as a side thing, um, if we think that, this, that the rebuke in the story against the religious leaders doesn't apply to us, then it's, this is probably when we should really start paying closer attention because in all reality, if we're, if we're paying attention and if we're honest, it really does apply to us. As my mom always used to say, if the shoe fits, put it on. And I think uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that for all of us, the shoe probably does fit. The Pharisee shoe 
in this story actually fits really well. I know for me, it definitely does. And I've been, I've been challenged in a lot of ways as I've been thinking through this, this passage recently. Part of being a Pharisee is thinking that you're a prophet. That's just how it goes. We all tend to think that we're the ones facing opposition for standing on God's truth. When in fact, what we might actually be standing on is our own self-made conception of truth. And we might be the ones who are guilty of opposing God's truth and opposing the people who are speaking it. We must actively guard against this kind of pharisaical thinking. And a good place to start is just by acknowledging that we have this tendency, this tendency to think I'm always right. And by admitting that I often tend to look for the speck in my brother's eye when I have a plank in my own. This is the challenge for all of us from this passage. In verse 12, after Jesus is done speaking, it, it says this. It says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So what if, like these religious leaders, we realize that Jesus is speaking this parable against us? Instead of rejecting him and getting angrier like they did, I think it's calling us to repent and it's calling us to confess our prideful versions of religion that are contrary to the gospel and to turn again and again. That's what repentance means, is to turn over and over again to Jesus and to his kingdom. Notice that in the parable, the reason the tenants killed the son was not because they didn't know who Jesus was. No, they, they killed him because they did know who Jesus was. They murdered him and threw him out of the vineyard because they wanted the vineyard and its grapes and its wine all to themselves. It's, and for the religious leaders that Jesus is talking with, it's kind of the same scenario. Here they are, they have God's long-awaited Messiah, the King of God's kingdom, the Savior, right there standing in front of them, talking with them. And what do they do? They reject him. And eventually they'll kill him because they don't actually want God's kingdom they don't want his king. They want their own kingdom. They're willing to murder God's own son for a corrupted version of religion that they've made up on their own. And that's, I think that's what we see all around us today. That's the human story. We see all kinds of false man-made religions that are rooted in power and greed and pride. In our sin, humankind has never been satisfied to be keepers of the vineyard. We want the vineyard to ourselves. Ever since the Garden of Eden, we've been hell-bent, really, literally, in some ways, on taking over and running things on our own. Left to ourselves, we do everything we can to rid the world of God, to reject his son, and to deny his reign as Lord over his creation. And I think even as Christians, we're prone to this same kind of thing, in, in small ways, in subtle ways, but I think in real ways. On one hand, this parable is a warning to unbelievers, and it's calling them to stop rejecting Jesus, to confess your sins, and to put your faith in, in him as God and in his Savior. But on the other hand, this pa passage has a strong message for us as Christians, too. It reminds us that all too often, like these religious leaders, we can become so confident in our own religiosity, and so enamored with things other than God, 
that we end up substituting those things and worshiping them in place of worshiping God. Essentially, I think that's what sin is. It's rejecting Jesus and worshiping something else, glorifying something else instead of glorifying him. And it's not really a question of whether we're gonna, we do this in our life today. It's a, really more of a question of how much or how often we do this. Pharise, being a Pharisee isn't just a either-or kind of binary thing. We're, we're on a spectrum of Pharisaicalism, as, as somebody, uh, somebody told me that, that idea this week. It's not whether we are one, it's to what degree we are one, or in what ways we're a, we're a Pharisee. In what ways are we rejecting Jesus? And I think there are a lot of ways that we could be essentially rejecting Jesus. We reject him when, like these religious leaders, we rely on false righteousness achieved by our own efforts instead of believing in the sin-defeating power of the risen Son and of his Holy Spirit. We reject Jesus when we arrogantly seek to elevate ourselves instead of glorifying him. We reject Jesus and contradict the gospel when we give in to worry and anxiousness, not trusting in God and not resting in the identity that we have in Christ. When we complain, we are rejecting Jesus by being ungrateful for the blessings we have in him and by abandoning the joy that comes from worshiping him. We're rejecting Jesus as king when we put our hope in earthly leaders and political parties to fix things or when we're overwhelmed with fear of what earthly leaders and political parties might do to harm things instead of hoping and trusting in the eternal and unshakable kingdom of God. We reject Jesus when we don't seek him in, in scripture. This is like when the Israelites re rejected the prophets and mocked them. To neglect the Bible is to treat with contempt God's grace, gracious revelation of himself to us. In many ways, we're all guilty of rejecting Jesus. I know at some, at some level, each of those things on that list of ways of rejecting Jesus apply to me and challenge me to repent and to turn and to confess my sin. In a way, we all took part in killing the vineyard owner's son and throwing him out of the vineyard. It's our sin that Jesus bore on the cross and if not for God's amazing grace and the atoning work of Christ, we would face the righteous wrath of God the Father. So this passage, it calls us to confess our sin and to repent of the ways that we reject Jesus and to turn repeatedly to his amazing grace. And this brings us to the last point of application. <clears throat> That's the point of application for the religious leaders. But I think we can also identify with the disciples in the story, those who were sitting around overhearing this conversation. They've seen what Jesus has been doing and saying all along, and they'll soon see him be given over and crucified by these same religious leaders. And then three days later, everything that, that Jesus has been saying and everything that he's been doing will kind of start to gradually come in, fall into place and come into focus. Because they'll see Jesus again, alive, risen from the dead, just like he said he would be. So as followers of Jesus, I think we can identify with those disciples who are listening. And for, the, for us, as we're thinking this way, the parable causes us to worship, to rejoice in the wonderfully good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and then to bear the fruit of his kingdom. 
In many ways, the parable itself summarizes the story of God's relationship with his people. It shows his care for them in establishing them as his people, and it demonstrates his patient grace in spite of their wicked rebellion. It reminds us of the persistent measures in sending his prophets, the things that he did over and over again. It also, uh, at at the very crux of of this story, it points to Jesus. It points to the Father's infinite love in sending his own beloved son to die. Just like the the vineyard owner sent his son, this is a picture of God sending his son. When the son is killed and the vineyard owner comes and executes justice on the tenants, that's not the end of the story. It would be a tragic, sad story if it ended there. It's here where everything seems to be most heartbreaking and hopeless that we encounter the wonderful news of the cross. In verse 10, at the end of the parable, Jesus again goes to the Old Testament, this time to Psalm 118, and he says this. He says, haven't you read this passage of scripture? And then he quotes Psalm 118, which, is, which says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Though he was rejected and killed, Jesus rose again and became the cornerstone of God's eternal kingdom. This is really an astounding story of the gospel, a marvelous story, as the psalm says. It's a story that should stir our hearts to worship, to rejoice in the amazing news of God that he sent his son on a rescue mission, a salvation mission, to restore his creation and to redeem us from our sins. In a beautiful and astonishing display of love and grace, the very death of the Son is what brought about salvation for his people. The rejected Messiah has become the eternal king. In just a couple minutes here, we're gonna prepare for communion. We're gonna actually sing uh, a song before we even start communion and and kind of uh, prepare our hearts. And as we do that, As we reflect on this passage and on what God has done for us, I think there's a few different ways that we can can process this and respond and prepare our hearts for communion. For for those of you who aren't a follower of Jesus, this parable is an encouragement to not reject Jesus. Instead, to believe that he is God's own son and that he came and died for your sins and that he rose again from the dead. And for those of us who are Christians, as we prepare for communion uh, and as we sing the song together, there's a few ways that we can, we can respond as well. Where we need to, we can confess the ways that we've been rejecting Jesus. And we can also remember God's persistent love and grace, thanking him for sending his own beloved son whose body was broken and whose blood was shed to save us from our sins and from the punishment that they deserve. And we can also rejoice that the Savior is now alive. That's part of what we do when we take communion. We think of his death, but we also think of his resurrection. The rejected, crucified son has become the cornerstone, the king of glory. And by his risen power and by his spirit, we can live lives of fruitfulness for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you especially for your son. Um, He came to us, to your people, at the culmination of 
of history um, according to your plan and by your amazing grace. Um, and he died, uh, his blood was shed, and his body was broken for our sins, uh, the sins of the very ones who um, put you on the cross, Jesus. And I, I just pray that you would prepare our hearts now for communion, lift them up to worship you, to rejoice in you. I pray that you would uh, challenge us to confess our sins and to change the ways that we have subtly rejected you. Um, just make much of yourself in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.